Good morning, Redemption Church. Today's scripture is 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 6 through 7. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Human beings have an interesting tendency and capacity to take the information that's presented right in front of us, the details, and to try and fill in the gaps when things don't make sense. We make a story out of it to bridge the things that don't quite fit with what we understand. Magicians have a career because of this, right? Uh, The magician has an assistant and she steps into the box He closes the box and he gets out his saw and we think something bad's going to happen here, right? He starts to saw through the woman and we get our first data point. We visually see this woman is being sawed in half. But then he puts the slides down and he takes the box and he moves it apart and we get our second data point because on one side, the woman's toes are wiggling, right? And on the other side, she's smiling and waving. She's okay. So we try to make a story out of how these two conflicting pieces of information work together, right? On the one hand, she shouldn't be okay. She's sawed in half. But on the other hand, she is okay. And so we piece a story together, and the story is he's a wizard, right? It's magic. Something has taken place that's magical. We don't just do this, though, when it comes to Uh, brain teasers and illusions and magic tricks, we have a tendency to fill in the gaps, fill in the details on a story in relationships too. Maybe tomorrow you head into work and you interact with your supervisor uh, and she's short with you, she's grumpy, and you try and make sense of this data point. Have I done something? Did I do something wrong? And then you make up a story to fill in the gaps between these two things that seem like conflicting pieces of information. And your story goes like this. Jill is always grumpy. Jill's a bad boss. She's not a kind person. I'm not valued here at this company. I'm taking my talents elsewhere, right? You fill in a story to make sense of what doesn't make sense. You bridge the gap in the narrative. But we don't just do this with magic tricks or with relationships. We do this when it comes to our relationship with God right? Some of you maybe are experiencing some really difficult things right now. A car accident totals your car. A family member's in the hospital. Uh, You're losing your job, and you don't know where the next, uh, how you're going to pay your bills this month. And you try and bridge the gap in information. You try and fill in the details, and you make a story. And the story says, God's not good. God's punishing you. Maybe it's for something you did in your past that you can't shake, right? You take the details, you take the information, the data points that are right in front of you, and we make a narrative out of it. But the problem is, 
we don't always see the full picture. We can't see the full picture. And so we fill in this narrative, this gap, but sometimes it's wrong. But God sees what people can't see. God can see the full picture. So my hope here this morning as we enter into a text uh, that has a lot to do with how God sees and what God sees is that we would be moved to a deeper trust, a greater faith in the God who sees what we can't see. Let's pray and then jump into the text. Heavenly Father, uh, we are grateful that you can see a full picture of reality. And we ask that as we enter into this text, God, that you would illuminate it for us, that you would uh, become alive in this text in a way that um, we have an experience. Refresh us, renew us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Speak to us so that we might know what to do in response to your word. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, well, my name's Keith. I am one of the pastors here at Redemption Church. Uh, we are going through a series in First and Second Samuel. And so if you need a Bible, please raise your hand and uh, one of our ushers will bring a copy of God's word to you. Don't be shy. Even if you want to just follow along in the text and you just forgot your Bible at home, go ahead and raise your hand and you can get a copy of God's word. If you don't own a copy of God's word, this Bible is our gift to you. Please hang on to it. We want everyone to have access to the Bible at home. Uh, y también tenemos en español. Si necesita una copia en español, por favor, levanta la mano y diga español y alguien va a traer una copia a usted. Uh, si no tiene una copia en su casa, eso es nuestro regalo a usted. Uh, we are in 1 Samuel. As I said, we've been going through a series called We Want a King. It details the lives of Israel's first three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. And so the series began in chapter 8, with the people coming to Samuel and demanding that they get a king. Because all the nations around them, all the cool kids, they were getting kings, and so they wanted a king as well. And God says, for some reason, okay, go ahead, provide for them a king, Samuel. So the king that they get is a man named Saul. His name literally means what was asked for. And he checks off all the physical boxes, right? He's handsome, he's strong, and most importantly, he's tall, which means he has the, the capacity to potentially be a great military leader. So, but as the narrative unfolds, what we see is that uh, although he's tall, he's actually cowardly. When they look for him, he's hiding. That he's not only cowardly, but he's also impatient, and that he's proud. He offers a sacrifice when only the priest should have done so. And then we read last week, that he takes some of God's commands and he says, I'll just interpret it through my own grid. I'll take some of this and I'll leave the rest. Some of this sounds good, but when it doesn't benefit me, I'll leave it. I'll ignore it. And we read that God's grieved that he made Saul king over his people. And that Samuel gets in Saul's face, he confronts him, and he says, you're not going to continue in this role. You're done. Your days are numbered. And we're told at the end of chapter 15, where we left off last week, that Samuel and Saul never speak again for the rest of their lives. The relationship between the prophet and the king has ended. Saul doesn't have any religious oversight anymore at all. And we're left wondering as the readers, along with Samuel, has God's plan failed? Maybe the kingship has failed. Is Israel doomed? But what we see in chapter 16 
is a response. God sees what people cannot see. And because God sees what people can't see, God provides what people can't provide. So first of all, God provides a sacrifice. Look with me, if you would, at chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So the first thing we ought to note here is that God sees Samuel's grief. It's real. He acknowledges it. He's not trying to say his grief is bad or wrong, that he shouldn't feel the way he feels. He's not dismissing it, but he's inviting him to something else. There's an invitation that God extends to a place beyond Samuel's grief, and it's good news. He asks him, how long will you grieve? Because today is a good day. Today is anointing day. Now, we need to take a little time out because anointing isn't a common word that we use, right, in our vernacular in English. Uh, But anointing, as a reminder, was a ritual where priests would take oil and they would pour it on a special person. Someone who had been set aside, marked off as chosen by God for a specific task. We read this about prophets. We see it about priests. And in this case, it's about a king. And so God tells Saul or Samuel, he says, get up out of bed, Samuel. The time for grieving is done. Go take a shower, dig through your closet, find your anointing flask, right? Today's the day. Put on some good walking shoes because you're going on a walk down to Bethlehem. Today's the day. But for Samuel, he's not so sure if this is actually good news. It doesn't seem like good news. It seems like it could be very bad news, actually, for his own safety. Read what Samuel responds, how he responds in verse 2. He says, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. So Samuel's in a predicament here, right? God has presented him with a command, get up and go, anoint a new king for me. And it's one that carries real risk to it, right? He's risking his own safety. He could be killed. It's probably not popular with the current king to have somebody selecting a new king who's going to replace him, right? But God sees the world in a fundamentally different way than we see the world. Samuel sees risk. But God sees an opportunity for faithful obedience. He sees Samuel's fears, and he responds by providing a real solution for Samuel. This is what it says in verse, uh, the rest of verse 2. Keep reading with me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So God here is gracious enough that he provides for Samuel this divine excuse to get up and go. He's covering him with a story that's going to keep him safe. And the story is take a heifer, take a cow so that you can sacrifice that cow. And that's going to be um, the thing that's going to hide you from your political enemies. Hide them from their eyes. And this excuse, it works. He makes it to Bethlehem safely under the cover of the sacrifice that God provides. 
I wonder, have you ever been in a situation where you knew that God was calling you to do something, but it carried some real risks, and so you were afraid to move forward with it? A situation where obedience maybe was costly to you? A number of years ago, a student in our ministry on campus was learning about what it meant to be financially faithful. She had a good job for a college student, and so she decided that she wanted to start giving regularly and sacrificially to the local church that she was a part of. Um, But the student's mom had had nothing but bad experiences with the church. Uh, She'd experienced judgment, she'd experienced rejection, and she'd experienced some financial manipulation from the churches she had been to. So when she looked at the bank statements and saw that her daughter was giving money to a church, she was scared. She was worried for her daughter. She called her up and she said, if you don't stop giving to this church, I will stop paying for your tuition. What do you do? What would you do if you were in that situation? How would you respond? See, the reality is that Sometimes faithful obedience to God carries with it real risks. It could be risky, and it could be that God is pressing on you to take a risk, to obey him in a way that costs you something. Maybe he's been pressing on you to be more intentional in conversations with your coworkers, to share the good news of Jesus with them. That doesn't come without risks. You might not be risking your life like Samuel's risking his life here, You might not be risking financial uh, stability, but you could be risking your reputation. Maybe you're risking your relationships with people. Maybe you're uh, risking some career advancement by speaking up. What do you do when God is calling you to do something, asking you to do something, asking for faithful obedience, but it comes with a risk? God's job is provision. Our job is faith. God's job is provision and our job is faith. He asks us to simply obey him in faith. So that's what Samuel and the people do. They participate in the sacrifice. They go forward with it. And the text tells us that Jesse and his sons are there at the sacrifice, which then brings us to God's second act of gracious provision in this passage. God provides a servant king. Let's keep reading. Verse six says this. When they came, he looked on, this is, so when they came, that's when Jesse's sons came, Samuel looked on Eliab and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So all of Jesse's sons are standing out here in front of Samuel, right? They're lined up. And Samuel kind of does a quick assessment. He He takes stock of all of the sons who are standing here. Now, we don't know what Eliab looked like, but we could probably make a guess. He probably looked like a king to Samuel, right? Because he's the first guy he picks. And remember how Saul was described in earlier chapters, handsome and tall. So it's probably a good guess that Eliab is handsome and tall. Height would have been a really important qualifier for a warrior king. The tallest man was often the one who would go out on behalf of the army and fight battles for his people. And so Samuel looks at the group, and I'm guessing he picks out Eliab because he's the tallest, strongest one. This dude never skips leg day, right? (laughs) 
There's this kingly quality about him. He could win battles. If he has to battle Saul even, he could probably take him on. So he thinks this is the guy. But God sees what people can't see. God sees the world in a different way than we see the world. So read what God's response to Samuel is in verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Good news for short people here. Because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. The Lord, uh, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So Samuel, being the guy that he is, he just picks the next tallest one. <laughs> and he goes through. He says, this guy's handsome, this guy's tall, and God says, not him. Next one up, not him. Next. Next, 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 not him, not him, not him, not him. What's going on? God is looking for something that Samuel can't see. God's looking for something that's not present in each of these strong, tall, buff men. God sees human beings in a fundamentally different way than we see human beings. We see the outside. God sees the inner reality. It's easy for us, though, to, uh, to villainize Samuel and be like, what is he thinking here? He keeps picking the strong and the tall ones. But let's be honest, we like attractive leaders. We do. We like attractive leaders. During the 1960 general election, two men were vying to succeed Dwight D. Eisenhower as the next president of the United States. There was a new innovation for this election, the televised debate. TV had never been a part of presidential elections prior to this. And going into the debate, the Republican nominee, Richard Milhouse Nixon, was leading the Democratic nominee, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, by six points in the polls. But television changed the game for JFK. See, JFK was a looker. He was attractive. He looked like a movie star. And so when that debate started up, the movie star walks on stage and then Nixon comes on, and he's in a gray suit that fades into the studio background. His skin starts to look gray as a result. The studio lights come on, and Nixon is sweating under the heat of the lights. His stubble can be clearly seen. His mom famously called him and asked afterwards, Are you sick? You didn't look well. The legend has it, that the people who listened to the debate on the radio believed that Nixon won, but the people who watched the debate believed that Kennedy won. See, Kennedy went on to close the polling gap. He went on to win the general election in a big way. And historians often point to this first instance of using televised debate as the turning point for Kennedy in his campaign because we're attracted to attractive leaders, right? Confident, bold, charismatic, intelligent, strong, visionary, entrepreneurial, famous, rich, celebrity. We're attracted to celebrity leaders, celebrity politicians. We're attracted to celebrity pastors. Now, are all attractive pastors, all attractive leaders somehow bad or wrong? No. But here's the problem. 
we have a tendency to overlook character when someone is competent. We overlook character when someone is competent. He's a narcissist. Yeah, but, you know, he's a charismatic speaker. He's greedy. Yeah, but look at how successful he is. He's controlling, but he gets so much done. He's a jerk to the people around him. But look at the fruit of the ministry. When God looks for a leader of his people, he's not looking at competency. He's not looking at charisma. He's not looking at confidence. He's looking at character. He's looking at the heart. Unless you think that the temptation here is that you just do this to politicians and leaders, that we just look at people who are in positions of leadership and do this. We do this about ourselves. If someone asked you as you're on your way out of here, how's your walk with the Lord doing? Would you respond like this? Good, I'm volunteering at my church. I go regularly. I go to a Bible study on Monday nights. These new redemption communities just started. And I was asked to lead an outreach ministry in our city. I read my Bible every morning. See, you just gave your Christian resume outward appearance. And none of those things are bad, but could this be the American evangelical version of being a strong, tall, warrior king? We like to look at the outward appearance when we look at our leaders, when we look at our pastors, when we look at ourselves, but God sees a reality that we can't see. God sees the heart. The people are looking for a tall, warrior king to lead them to victory in battle, but God's looking for a servant king who has a humble heart. So here's Samuel, and he's wondering, maybe I went to the wrong Jesse of Bethlehem's house. Maybe I typed the address wrong into my GPS, right? And he asks Jesse, and I like the way that the message translation renders this. It's, it's funny to me. <laughs> and he asks Jesse, is this it? Are there no more sons? Well, yes, there's the runt. (laughs) But he's out tending to the sheep. So Samuel ordered Jesse, go get him. We're not moving from this spot until he's here. The runt of the litter is the only one left. He's the only one who's left out of the sacrifice. His father, Jesse, he's... He's so insignificant to his family, so insignificant to his community that his own father forgot to invite him to the sacrifice with all his sons. Samuel's like, bring all your sons. And Jesse's like, well, I'll bring most of my sons. I'm not gonna bring that guy. The youngest son doesn't make the cut. He's like like Cinderella missing the ball, right? And not only is he missing the party, but he's out in the fields doing the stinky, dirty work of tending to sheep on behalf of his family. Samuel insists, no one here is moving a muscle until we get this kid in front of me. Nobody move. Maybe that's a punishment that fits the crime here. But they eventually find the boy, and ironically, after the text, really drives home the point that we should not look at outward appearances. This is what it says in verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. 
Isn't that ironic? Now he's describing how handsome he is. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. So he describes him as ruddy, has beautiful eyes, handsome, but one descriptor is conspicuously absent. You might notice it here. Height. He doesn't say anything about height. This boy probably would not have been very tall. He probably would not have been very strong. But the Lord found his man, anoint him. This is he. So Samuel anoints the boy, and we're told that the Spirit of God rushes on the boy named David. And Samuel heads home. God has provided his servant king. But the narrative then shifts. It returns to Saul suddenly, and we see that God's provision extends even to Saul. Look with me at how God provides the Spirit as we move to verse 14. Now, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, if you're here last week, I made a really big deal, a really big point of saying we can't just skip over the hard stuff in the Bible because we don't like it. Uh, And I was very tempted to skip over it, but I didn't. what we're going to do here is this is a tough one, and it requires a bit of a theological pit stop before we go any further. Because the temptation here is to read this in a way where you say, wow, if the, if the Spirit took, or if God took the Spirit from Saul and then delivered a tormenting Spirit to him, maybe he's going to do that to me. But this is describing what happened to Saul. It's not prescribing what will happen to you. So we're going to take a quick pit stop here and and look at a couple different things. First of all, the Holy Spirit then versus the Holy Spirit now. In the Old Testament, what we see is that the Holy Spirit comes on specific people for a specific task. The building of God's temple, becoming a priest or a prophet or a king. But after Jesus raises from the dead and initiates his new kingdom, the Holy Spirit is given freely to all who follow him as a gift. It's a sign, it's a seal of the new kingdom here on earth. So it's just for specific individuals in the Old Testament. It's for everyone who's called by the name of Jesus after his resurrection. In the Old Testament, the spirit could be taken away when the task was complete or in an instance of judgment for disobedience. But Jesus secured for us in his death and in his resurrection the presence of the Spirit that will never leave us. While it's not possible that the Spirit will abandon those who are called by Jesus' name, it is possible that we ignore the Holy Spirit. It's possible that we turn the volume down on his voice, mute him. It's possible that we grieve the Holy Spirit. It's possible that we walk out of step with the Holy Spirit. But it's not possible that the Holy Spirit will depart from us if we're in Jesus. So then, for a specific task, a specific person, now for all believers. Then, could leave, does leave, now the Spirit does not leave us, okay? Now, what about the other thing that I think we need to make a quick pit stop on here is God and evil. Because the wording of this passage is a little bit confusing. It's a little tricky. Is God somehow commissioning this harmful spirit to go and torment Saul? That's what it reads as, right? The way we interpret this passage has to be in light of all of the scriptures. We read the scriptures through the scriptures. We interpret the scriptures through the scriptures. And so here's what we know. One, God is good all the time. All the time. 
Okay. We just sang it. <laughs> um, two, we know that God cannot sin, that God does not sin, that he can't commit evil. Uh, and three, we know that God sometimes, under certain, certain circumstances, that he allows, he permits evil circumstances, and he even uses those circumstances. One example would be the Babylonian exile. He permits the uh, empire of Babylon to come and to bring judgment on the people of Israel. He permits that and uses that for his own reasons. So sometimes it's a judgment that he permits evil, but other times it's just unknown. We don't know why he permits or allows evil. In the case of Saul, it's a judgment. It's very clear that this is a judgment on Saul. Saul has disobeyed God multiple times and he's removing his spirit and sending this harmful spirit, permitting this harmful spirit as a judgment against Saul. So the bottom line here is that Saul is a man who is both physically and spiritually unwell. He's afflicted. Something is going on in Saul's life that's really gripping him as a person. And the servants of Saul tell him he needs something. Uh, how about some music therapy, right? He says, I know a great musician, um, just the guy. He's an extremely overqualified shepherd boy that's in Bethlehem. Let's take a look at what it says about him in verse 18. One of the young men answered, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. He's skillful in playing. His resume could just end there. That was the, that's what was needed, right? Just end the resume there. But it goes on. A man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. He's really trying to sell uh, David here <laughs> as the guy for the job. So Saul agrees and he sends for David, the man that was secretly anointed earlier in the text, to be Saul's replacement, to be the next king. This is the man that the spirit of the Lord is on. And every time David plays the lyre, it says that the harmful spirit departs Saul. Read verse 23. Whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. Saul was refreshed and well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. What's fascinating to me about this section is not the, the, theologic, the tricky theological questions that we try to sort out. What's fascinating to me about this section is that God still cares about soothing the man who's experiencing his judgment. That God is still concerned with providing for Saul after all of that. Saul's in need of help. His servants, uh, he asks his servants for provision. He says, provide for me. He doesn't ask the Lord. He doesn't attempt uh, repentance. He doesn't try to return to God. What he's doing is leveraging his power, he's leveraging his position, he's leveraging his wealth, and he's trying to get help from anywhere he can. But even though Saul thinks that he's getting help from his servants, from his power, from his wealth, in the end, it's actually God that's providing the help. God is providing the Spirit. Sometimes you and I can be so focused on our circumstances that we totally miss that God is using other people in our lives for healing. God's inviting us to graciously receive the gift of the Holy Spirit through the voices of other people soothing us. 
Once upon a time, there was a man, and the man was drowning, and he prayed to God. He said, God, please rescue me. I'm drowning. And while he was praying, another man came by in a small rowboat. Do you need help, sir? The man said, no, thanks. God's going to rescue me. A fisherman came by in a barge. Do you need help, sir? No, thanks. God's going to rescue me. A helicopter rescue team flew overhead. Do you need help, sir? No, thanks. God is, and he drowned. The man now is suddenly standing face to face with God, and he says, God, why didn't you rescue me? God says, I sent a rowboat. I sent a barge. I sent a helicopter rescue team, but you refused my help. Some of you here are in dire circumstances. Some of you are afflicted physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. You're drowning. The gift of God's soothing, the gift of God's comfort, the gift of God's spirit often comes to us through the help of other people. So don't be so proud that you refuse. Don't be so bogged down with the cause of your suffering that you miss out on who God might be putting in your life as a solution. God might be divinely providing for you the soothing presence you need in your neighbor through the Holy Spirit manifest in their life. And if you're a follower of Christ, that same spirit lives in you. He might be moving you to soothe and to care for someone here in this congregation. Perhaps God's plan is to use you to speak words of comfort, to use you to speak hope to a neighbor or a coworker or a family member. Maybe you're God's plan for the hurting. Maybe you are God's plan for the hopeless. Maybe you are God's plan for the afflicted. We have a really hard time seeing the way that God sees. We just can't see the full picture. We look at the risks and God looks at faith. We look at the competence on the outside and God looks at the character of the heart. We look at our circumstances and God looks at his provision through relationships. And when God looks, he sees our needs and he provides for us. He provided a sacrifice for Samuel that delivered him out of the danger that he was experiencing. In Jesus, God provided a better sacrifice that will deliver us from death. God provided a servant king for the people, known by his humility, not his height. In Jesus, God provided a better servant king who emptied himself and humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. God provided the comfort of his spirit to Saul, though he was God's enemy by the voice of David. God provided us with his Holy Spirit, though we were once his enemies through the son of David. Because God sees what we can't see, God provides what we can't provide. God provides himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, it's easy for us to not see the whole picture. We just don't see the way that you see. 
We pray that we would be moved to simple obedience and simple faith to trust you in the times that we don't understand what's going on in our lives. We thank you that you see what we can't see, that you see inner realities when we look at outer realities. We're thankful that you are faithful to respond to our feelings, our fears, our grief, and to provide in a practical way for us. Thank you that ultimately you provided yourself exactly what we need when you died on the cross, Lord Jesus. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.